and welcome to Linux Action News, Episode 0, recorded May 5th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Joe, we've got some really interesting stories this week, and the first one that piqued both our interests is one that's coming out of GR Security, and I'm not sure if it's on very many radars out there. What's going on with our first story? Yeah, so GR Security, they take the kernel and they add some security patches to it and then sell it. And up to now, you have been able to see these patches and use them even if you're not a customer of theirs. But now they've decided to pull the plug on that. And so only if you pay them will you get these changes. And that rings alarm bells, right? Well, hang on, they're making changes to GPL software. Shouldn't they have to release the changes? So and to give it some context too, you could compare it somewhat to GR Security to SE Linux or AppArmor in some cases. GR Security would say it's even more complete of a solution. And so there are folks out there on Debian systems that are all hardened up with this GR Security. They're essentially hooked on the good sauce, the good security sauce. And they base their audits off this stuff. Like it's it's a it's a very important tool for some people that have these installations. And it's been free historically. What I thought was interesting too, Joe, is GR Security is uh, put out by – there's like a corporation that runs it, the Open Source Security Inc. company. Yeah. And uh, they reformed – like they did some sort of big company reforming in 2015. And uh, this is sort of a big bombshell announcement. And I got to wonder if when they reformed, if maybe something was in the works, a way to try to get to profitability. And they essentially say, if you don't want to pay, well, then you can use the one that's based on Linux kernel 4.9. That's an LTS kernel. And it'll last for quite a while. And you can just stay on that. But if you want something new, you have to purchase a subscription. Oh, what's the cost of that subscription? Just ask us. We're not putting it on the website. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. You talk about corporate restructuring in a open source projects. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Trying to make mm. a profit all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting approach, though, because it's like you touched on, it's taking GPL software and saying you can't have access to it unless you pay a subscription. But And I don't think RMS would have a problem with that necessarily. But there is a contract agreement, I believe. It's hard to get details because there's only vague information online. But it sounds like you have to agree that you will not redistribute GPL software. And if you do agree to that, and you still share the code with somebody, like you give them some of the some of the GR security software magic, they will terminate your contract. So it's you can share it because legally they have to let you since it's GPL software, but they'll punish you for it. And it's really not in the spirit of open source and free software, this, is it? Well, how is this different than what Red Hat does? Well, Red Hat, the source is available. You've got CentOS, you've got Scientific, you've got Unbreakable. The source is available, and it's just not the binary. Right. Yes, that's true. But uh, in, in, a, in the same sense, though, they're distributing GPL software that you pay for with the Red Hat s- subscription, and they are telling you not to redistribute that GPL software in some sense. I agree it's not a good analogy. Um, but I, and, I, and actually, Red Hat does make binaries available as well. So it's not it, the analogy doesn't quite hold up, but it's not, I would say, unprecedented that there isn't some sort of contract that almost seems to override some inherent aspects of the GPL. Yeah, but even though it's legal what they're doing, probably, although there are some people online who are kind of arguing that it's not. Yeah. But even if it is legal, which I think it is, it's just not in the spirit, is it? Mm-hmm. The whole point of open source software is that you make your changes available to everyone. Mm-hmm. They would argue that they're putting a lot of work into this and they're seeing demand to move over to ARM platforms. They're seeing demand for Android protection and mobile in general. And there's no funding to do that. And they, there's demand. People are deploying Linux on ARM systems. They want GR security and they want to deliver it. 
I, I can, I mean, what are they going to do? They got to make a buck. Yeah, but that's the argument that kind of just falls down. If you can't make money from it, then should you be in open source in the first place? I don't know. I mean, I, I can see why they want to charge money for it. It's fine that a lot of work goes into it. But at the same time, they are taking something that has been contributed to by a lot of people and is free to anyone. And yeah, they, they're working on that. And then they're not releasing the changes. It's it's just not in the spirit of open source. And you know, I keep saying that because there's one thing to be within the rules and within the law and the contracts and all the rest of it, but to be in the spirit of open source, it it just looks bad to me. It it feels too corporate. And I suppose that's probably what they want. They want to be corporate. They want to make money, right? Well, I mean, I, Richard Stallman doesn't have a problem with people making money off of GPL software. I guess go. It's for, here's where I'll give you something. I don't know if I completely agree with you, but where I do kind of feel like they definitely went against the whole spirit of the community is they've been around, they've been doing this for like 16 years in one form or another. They haven't been a corporation, I don't think, for that long. But they've been they've been a community, I think, for 16 years for, and doing this for free for 16 years. Uh, and you, you got to ask yourself, like, at, at what point do you do you have to make some kind of change to turn this thing around, to make it in from a hobby to a day job, to make it sustainable, to grow it? But... That, I think, is one conversation. Then I think there's a second conversation, and this is where I'm going to give you some ground here, is the second conversation, how they went about it. How they went about this is, is, is rough. It's, it's brutal. It's the change is effective the day of the post. April 26, 2017, that that post went online, the change was immediate. No more options, no warning, just done. We're, we're, we're switching gears. Enjoy your 4.9-based release. We're moving on. And that, to me, that immediate kind of abruptness, the no, no warning. When, when you're talking enterprise installations, it, they, they, it's, almost, it's almost like they pulled the rug out from under, underneath people and the only way to pick yourself back up is to subscribe. In fact, they even talk about it in their, in their, uh, in their uh, frequently asked questions they, where they say, what do I do if I'm dependent on this? They say, well, then you should probably subscribe. You should probably. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, at least what Canonical did with Ubuntu changing to GNOME, if you want to stay on Unity, at least you've got 16.04 for another four years, which you can make your plans. Whereas this, exactly, it just feels, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, put it that way. Yeah, and it it seems to be that there could have been a different route. There could have been a different uh, path to take here. I didn't really follow GR security super closely uh, before this because uh, for myself, SE Linux or AppArmor has always sort of done whatever I've needed. But it's it, it is interesting to check it out. You can go to gr, grsecurity.net, and if you want to know how it compares to SE Linux and AppArmor and why I'm making that comparison, even though it's not exactly apt, you can find it at grsecurity.net slash compare.php. Everyone's favorite subject, Secure Boots, in the news this week. Coming from Debian, the uh, final stretch of Debian 9 stretch is upon us, and one of the revelations that's come out from that is Secure Boots been booted. Yeah, Joe? Well, it's considered no longer a blocker to release, so it's not looking good for its inclusion straight away, put it that way. So it's not that they're explicitly excluding it, it's that they're not going to let it hold up the release. So it could come, it could come after release then, possibly, I would imagine. Yeah, I would have thought so because, yeah, it's kind of important, but they just don't deem it important enough to stop the release. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. If you are capable of installing Debian and want to install Debian rather than one of the more, well, I was going to say mainstream, but easier distros like Ubuntu, Fedora, that kind of thing, are you really the kind of person who's going to worry about going into your BIOS, well, your EFI and turning off Secure Boot? 
I mean, it's not going to be an issue for someone like me, you know. I suppose it's dependent on who the target is because um, there are some servers that have Secure Boot as well and uh, enterprises potentially for security reasons would want to use Secure Boot. I don't really have the hate for Secure Boot that the entire Linux community apparently has. Having talked to some people that helped develop it, it they, they seem to have very rational approaches on it and the Linux Foundation doesn't seem to have a big issue with it. Even They don't even seem to have a big issue with Microsoft asking OEMs to include Microsoft keys by default. They, they say as long as it's consumer choice, they don't, they don't really seem to have a big issue with it. How do you feel? Because to, to me, this seems like almost like a non-issue. Secure Boot, either it's on or off, almost doesn't seem like it matters to me. Well, where it matters is with the kind of person who goes to their local electronic store, buys a Windows laptop, mm. uses it for a couple of years, it gets so slow that they can't reliably use it anymore, and then they start hearing about things like Linux Mint or Ubuntu, and they want to try that out, and they follow some instructions, and then it won't boot because Secure Boot doesn't work. Now, that isn't going to be an issue with the the more mainstream distributions, whereas with Debian, that's what I said at the beginning of this. If you're the kind of person who's get, who's wanting to install Debian, then you're kind of going to have the technical skills to get into the EFI and turn off Secure Boot anyway. Um, so for me, Secure Boot, I, I can't stand it. It just gets in the way. It makes it harder to boot Linux. So the first thing I do, I mean, I got a new laptop this week from Entraware, and the first thing I did was turn off Secure Boot, and then I've just never looked back, basically. It's been working fine since then. But the kind of person who isn't going to turn that off, that's why you need to have support for it. But for me, Debian, I, I don't think they need it. It would be nice to have it, but I don't think, I think it's justified to say it's not a blocker. I agree. And I think you have a good point. You, I do take your point. And also, if you're the type of person that would probably be uh, comfortable installing Debian and turning on or off Secure Boot, you might also be someone who'd be more inclined to try Dev1, the GNU slash Linux project that is Debian Jesse now without SystemD, and they're supporting new devices. Are they going to get you, Joe? Are they going to pull you in with their Chromebook support? Well, not the Chromebook stuff, but the Raspberry Pi stuff, maybe, because, you know, Dev1 to me, I didn't think it would even get to a, a 1.0, and we're at release candidate 2 now, so we're almost there. Because to me, it just feels a bit irrelevant, because SystemD, it's 1. There's no point trying to fight against it. I mean, and from my experience, I haven't really noticed the difference. I don't really get down and dirty with um, init scripts and stuff anyway. So as long as the system boots, that's all I care about. And in most cases with systemd, it seems to boot faster. Well, yeah, exactly. So that's kind of a, a plus for me. Yeah, although I I started, you know, Joe, I started as a Dev1 skeptic. Um, I made fun of the name a little bit, and I, I kind of thought it was a bunch of graybeards that uh, just wanted everybody off their lawn. And I didn't, I still don't quite grok the, all of the use cases for the project, but I'm starting to see more of it, especially when it comes to lower-end devices with lower, um, lower maybe perhaps some system memory. But also, I think it could potentially be a really great distribution to base other distributions off of that want to do very niche solutions, distros that are very targeted. Devon could be a really great base distribution for those too. So as time goes on, I'm starting to respect the project a little more and more. And I also, I got to respect the fact that they're, they're nailing these releases. You know, they're on their second release candidate just two weeks after the first rele release candidate came out. And they're already talking about turning their attention to uh, the ASCII release, which is their current development branch, once Jesse's released. So, they I mean, they really seem to, you know, have their T's crossed and their I's dotted. Yeah, well, fair play to them. And, you know, choice is always good. I don't think it's necessarily going to be something I'm going to choose 
on the desktop or server. But what interests me is the fact that it's going to be available for a ton of ARM devices, including the Raspberry Pi 1, 2, and 3. Mm-hmm. And I have been pretty vocal in the past about um, not being a huge fan of Raspbian, the kind of default Debian-based distro for um, the, the Raspberry Pi. So maybe, a, dare I say it, a properly implemented Debian might be nice on the Pi. And so it's something I'm keen to check out. Certainly once we get a proper release, I'm going to check it out. And um, yeah, maybe I can report back on it. I have also been very, very interested in Google's SDK of Google Home, the whole Google Assistant AI that you can now load on a Raspberry Pi. And I'm not the only one that's kind of interested. It looks like, is it MagPie that's putting together a kit, like a do-it-yourself kit to create a really cheap Google Home? Yeah, so the Raspberry Pi official magazine called the MagPie, which is um, funded and subsidized by the Raspberry Pi Foundation, they have given away a few things in the past, including the Raspberry Pi Zero, which was pretty amazing. I mean, people were talking about, in my day, we used to get software discs given away with magazines, and now we get a computer given away. Um, And now they've kind of upped it a little bit by giving away this kit, which is basically a cardboard box, um, speaker, um, and a button, and then the the other necessary hardware to connect to the the Google SDK and and get um, Google Assistant talking to you and interacting with you. And the whole point of the Raspberry Pi Foundation is to get kids into computing. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I feel that this is a great thing because you've got kids tinkering with this stuff and and getting their, you know, potentially Raspberry Pis that have been sitting in a drawer might end up being brought out and actually used for this thing. But then at the same time, I think, well, Google are kind of a big evil corporation and should the Raspberry Pi Foundation really be encouraging kids to, you know, get more um, enveloped in that Google world where everything's tempting because it's free and cool and shiny? Yeah, but... In the world, in the in the reality, in the reality of Chromebooks, YouTube, and and uh, the Chrome browser, I feel like that's probably the last worry. I, in fact, one of the things I kind of thought was neat about it for the security conscious folks that are still curious, it uh, it doesn't have always on listening. You have to push the button. So when you're not pushing the button, it can't hear you, which might be some fun, some folks' preferred way to interact with a Google Assistant. <laughs> well, that's what they tell you. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. I think I think the button press has to be used because it, that's that's what activates the micro. The microphone's off on the Raspberry Pi. I'm not. Quite, I don't. I don't remember the details. Yeah. Well, this kit comes with a microphone, and so yeah, yeah it, it, that makes sense. But you can hook up any mic um, and speaker mm-hmm. to any Raspberry Pi, and you can sort the software out yourself. So it's you're not, um, you know, you're not limited to just this kit. But if you do get this kit, then it's free with a magazine, which is like four pounds or something or five pounds, ridiculously cheap for what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you wonder how much of that money is Google money and how much of it's Raspberry Pi money. Mm-hmm. They both uh, got a few quid, I think. So good point. Good point. Yeah. Also, uh, you get a, you know, you get you get a at least a good a good project like this the thing with the raspberry pi for kids is i've always felt like it's great but if you need you actually need something to accomplish that is desirable by the average person to play with this and the and this even if you and i might have concerns about the security implications of always listening devices or assistance 
they, to be able to say to a kid, you can assemble this box with this little Linux computer in here, and then you can ask it questions and do Google searches, that's actually an achievable thing that kids would want to get involved in, or actually, let's be honest, even adults. And so that, I do like that aspect of it. I'm not totally sold. I would love I would love to say, I would love to be doing a story that was a Mycroft box, and you came with all the kit you needed, and it was just a really great, super responsive Mycroft box. It's, we're not there yet. We're, we're just not there. The Google Assistant is a real product. The SDK came out recently. You can set up yourself or you can get a kit like this, and I think it's actually going to get people to get their hands on these things. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a, a huge hit. Man, Mycroft, that was the word that I just kept thinking about, Mycroft. And the next word was, why? Why don't we have that yet? Where are you? I know. I'd, I'd, you know everyone had such good hopes for that, and, and here we are. They still haven't delivered. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and the, the opportunity is lost now, surely. I mean, you've got Alexa. I mean, the thing is, like, even the, the real hardcore open source people that I know, like you and Wimpy and, you know, Popey and those kind of people, you've all bought, um, echoes now. You, you mm-hmm. kind of just given up on that whole Mycroft thing. You know what else? He, he probably, he'd probably kill me for saying this. But uh, if you ask him, he'd admit it. Noah is is looking at the Echo 2 now. He can connect it to his offline uh, home automation system and use it as the voice bridge. And he was obviously a a skeptic, but then working in the studio throughout the last week and using it to... <laughs> he sold him on it. <laughs> ...to control the studio. It did. It, it sold him on it. And he started to, you know, you see the benefits of it, especially when you're moving stuff around and working with equipment. Um, and so there is something to it. And you could... The Google Assistant in the Raspberry Pi can connect all the same services and APIs and control your your lights and all of that in that little uh, cardboard box. Somehow, I don't know, I'd probably prefer Google than Amazon somehow. I don't know why. Really? Yeah, I don't know why that is. I just don't really like Amazon. I think the lack of tax paying and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I have those concerns too. I mean, they're the Walmart of the internet for sure, but mm. I I find their motivation understandable. They want they want to put a storefront in my house and they want to sell me goods from their website that I buy goods from. But Google has a totally different motivation for putting an assistant in a Raspberry Pi or in a tube, and that is data collection. And it's, mm. you know, and they're already experimenting with uh, advertisements. So if you ask us, if you can ask these assistants, you can ask all these ladies in a tube, what's going on? What's new? What's the report? And they'll, they'll start kicking off like your different news feeds and give you a verbal reading of what's going on on whatever news feeds you follow. And then now what they're just doing is they're slipping in an ad for a movie, also playing today at a theater near you and it's a paid ad that they're yeah. just slipping into the feed now it's you, like you can already see the trajectory that they're going with the google assistant so for me be, when i when i look at the motivations it seems like amazon's probably the most trustworthy i don't even want to say it i can't even say it well it's you can trust them to be a, a company that's selling things whereas google they what are they selling advertising it's kind of a little bit um shadier isn't it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah amazon just wants to sell you shoes yeah. I want to take a moment and thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action News. DigitalOcean.com. Go there, sign up, and use our promo code. Here's the thing. Oh, Joe, we got to come up with a new promo. We'll think about that. But for right now, go retro. Here's the thing. You create an account and you apply to DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is an easy way to spin up a server on their infrastructure. They call them droplets. I call them magic. And they have a great interface to manage it. Really nice services. And Joe, have you seen DigitalOcean's documentation? It's like ArchWiki good. Yeah, I use it all the time for all kinds of stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's a really convenient way. Once you get a system set up, they have one-click deployments. 
of like an entire application stack, or you can just do like a base system and then go read the documentation. It's really top notch. They're also rolling out high CPU droplets. So if you just need like a ton of CPU power, they're rolling that out. You can get early access right now. They've recently rolled out monitoring. They have block storage. You can get a machine spun up in less than 55 seconds. And if you use our promo code, here's the thing. You can try out the $5 rig, two months for free, and you're voting for the new show, which we really appreciate that. Let our sponsors know that you're still listening. Go over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code, here's the thing, spin up a droplet on their incredible infrastructure with 40 gigabit e-connections, SSDs for all of the storage, and maybe some ponies. DigitalOcean.com, promo code, here's the thing. Okay, let's talk about Nexus phones and devices, shall we? And this is a story that I've seen floating around this week. And it wasn't really news to me, but it seems that it is news to quite a lot of people. And that is that you basically get about three years of support with a Nexus device for official ROMs from Google. Well, three years if you're lucky, really. Because if you bought, if you buy a Nexus device, say, nine months to a year into its release, uh, which is not unusual because sometimes the Nexus devices or Pixel devices are actually very hard to get your hands on because Google doesn't seem to make enough of them. And so if you buy them um, nine months, a year into release, the phone will stop receiving updates before your carrier agreement is up. Yeah, which isn't very good, is it? As somebody who's bought just about every Nexus, just about, this is something I've definitely noticed, and it, it does sting a little bit because... Um, I, I thought that was the point of the Nexus program was to keep getting updates directly from Google. And I was surprised when little things like a, a contract with Broadcom expired. So they just stopped shipping updates that, that surprised me when that happened. Um, and I used to tell myself that this was fine because the Nexus devices like the five and the five X are, are reasonably cheap compared to other smartphones on the market. And so if I have to replace them somewhat more frequently, you know, in the end, it's probably about the same cost. However, now with the Pixel phones being $700, $800, that whole math has changed now. Yeah, and we're talking about three years here. That is the security updates. The major versions of Android are only two years for the 6P, the 5X, mm. the 9, the 6, you know, and the 5 even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's be honest, I actually care more about that than I even do security. I mean, I want my security updates too, but... Yeah, I mean, the thing is that it, the phones are not completely useless without the security updates and let's face it billions of people or billions of devices out there running you know the cheaper ones samsung and and other oems that basically you buy the device and never get a single update people are happily using them logging into their bank and all the rest of it so it's not like it gets bricked after three years Mm -hmm. but yeah you'd think that coming straight from google and i mean the thing is that if you buy a laptop running windows how many years are you expecting to get in terms of security updates with that? I don't know, seven maybe? I mean, I would think. Yeah, I mean, XP got like 10, you know. So in theory, you can buy a laptop or you used to be able to buy a laptop, a, a computing device, which let's face it, phones and tablets are as well. And you could get at least five, six, seven plus years of security updates. Right. Whereas now with these ARM devices, because it's so difficult to um, update them because they're all unique and they all need their unique ROM and drivers and all the rest of it, that you get these situations where the the kind of shining um, poster child for updates, the Nexus series, are only getting three years. I mean, thankfully, you've got custom ROMs and 
that's something that I have been into for a long time because I don't want all of the Google stuff. I want some of the Google stuff, but um, Open G Apps Pico for the win is all I would say there. You get the Play Store and that's it. And then you can build that up. You can install whatever you want. And I'm hoping that my Nexus 9 and my Nexus 7 will continue to be supported with security updates. Right now, they're basically up to date. But if you're the kind of person who's not into doing that kind of stuff and flashing ROMs and just wants stock, then you're just out of luck, basically. Well, and that's really that's really not saying the majority of the market is an understatement. Really, that is that oh, is yeah. the market. It is such a niche to do this custom ROMs. That's why I, I sort of wince when it even is brought up um, because it's so often an excuse for what what to me seems to be inadequate customer support. I the iPhone five. I mean, I don't. I don't mean to make this comparison, but the iPhone 5 and the iPad 4, released in 2012, still getting updates, still getting yeah. still getting fixes. Well, my friend just upgraded from a 4S to a 7, and she was still getting security updates. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that should be for all Android phones. It just doesn't seem scalable with the, with the multi-vendor model. But for Pixel devices and Nexus devices, it seems like that would be reasonable. And for those of you wondering... The Pixel phones that are on the market right now will stop getting updates in October 2018. Which is not very far off, is it? <laughs> yeah. And then I think you get like security for another year after that. So, you know, take it for what it is, I guess. At least at least you know going in, I suppose, now. What, that was the other thing, Joe, really, is this wasn't really official official. Like it was not really quite clear for many years with the Nexus program. So at least now we have some numbers, we have some expectations to be set. Well, they kind of said two and three years, but they'd never kind of, it it always been from the last time it was available. Whereas now we've got some actual, as you say, in numbers, September, 2017, September, 2018, that kind of stuff. So at least people know where they are now, but um, maybe it'll drive people to custom ROMs and and maybe even in a dream world, not installing the Google stuff on there, but uh, yeah, F-Droid and stuff, maybe yeah, better and, dream on in that one. And maybe, and maybe Convergence will take off and we'll all be running Ubuntu on our phones. Oh, wait. Uh, well, you never know with Maru. <laughs> that's, you've got proper Convergence. Maybe there. so, maybe so. And at least we'll all be able to play and encode MP3s. So that's good. Yeah, so there's been quite a um, hoo-ha about this. The final MP3 patents running out. And even Fedora now is adding full MP3 support. So... You could previously decode so you can play back your MP3s, but now you can even encode, right. or you will be able to on Fedora, which is um, kind of a sign to me that they, um, we're a legal team as big as Red Hat have got seem to think it's fine, so therefore it must be, right? Yeah, well, and uh, the, to me the big signal was is that the, um, the folks that, ha- that originally held some of the licensing posted on their website essentially saying, have at it. And I thought, that, okay, that's a pretty clear communication it's still not free software fully. I mean, it's free as in cost, and it's free as in speech, but it's not open source code. It's. Mm. Uh, but here's my here's my question to you: Is this enough? And is this is this going to be the death of Og? Could be, could be because yeah, I suppose now that you don't have to worry about MP3. But then again, is this not a sign that MP3? is a defunct format. I mean, it's it's basically yeah. ubiquitous at this point. Yeah, but that was actually what they implied when they posted it. Was it Frau, how, how do you say their name, Joe? Do you know the uh, Fraunhofer or Fraunhofer? I would say um, Fraunhofer. Okay. So they essentially said on their blog, like, yeah, we're done. We're over MP3. There's other things we're moving on to. It, there's other better stuff out there. 
We, and we have plenty of patents on those things. <laughs> but there's things. probably petabytes of MP3s sitting on various oh, yeah. people's hard drives oh, yeah. and NASes and stuff. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and the, the, the reality is, and this is when I asked you about the AUG uh, thing, the reason why I asked is we've recently, for our new shows, been doing a whole new renovation on the back end. And that includes moving to different hosting providers for our files and doing, doing a lot of market research. And... Um, Joe, it, in my in my market research, what I found was that MP3 is the de facto supported format everywhere. And uh, if a platform like Libsyn or another one has support, it's sort of like hacked on. And if they do have a secondary format support, it's almost always M4A, AAC Audio. Yeah. Uh, and, and Joe, these companies, their entire business is hosting podcasts. That's what they do. And they don't even have they, they don't have AUG support. And this is not one. This many companies they they simply don't have AUG support. They maybe maybe have AAC support, and they definitely have MP3 support. So in the podcasting world, it's getting harder. It's getting harder to distribute AUG files. It's costing more because you have to build your own hosting solutions. And if you have a lot of downloads, it gets expensive. Yeah. Well, hopefully this will mean that people will stop complaining. Why don't you have an AUG? Why don't you have an AUG? Because MP3 is relatively free now. Yeah. Can we all just move on to Opus? I want everybody asking, where's the Opus? Where's the Opus? <laughs> what about Speaks? <laughs> yeah, where's Speaks? I want Opus, Speaks. I want in VP9, too. Just I want to take an image file and encode in VP9 with a Theora audio track. Why not? I don't know, I don't know if we're going there. <laughs> Let's face it, Chris. We should be putting this out in FLAC. That's right. the, only, uh, the only format that matters. I agree. We can only do it for two minutes, though. We have to make it a two-minute show. That way it fits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of our first episode, episode zero of Linux Action News. You can find us online at linuxactionnews.com, where you'll find RSS feeds, links to add it to your favorite podcast player, and, of course, you'll find it in our Jupiter Broadcasting feeds. You can go to linuxactionnews.com for all of that stuff. Like also links to the things we talked about. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. And I'm at Joe Ressington. Linux Action News is a weekly show, so be sure you get that RSS feed. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. See you later.